Businesses all over the world right now are trying to reinvent how they connect with the world. Whether a business is delivering packages, treating patients, or running a global customer support center, their customers need them to invent new ways to stay connected. Twilio is the platform that Fortune 500 companies and startups alike trust to build seamless communication experiences with phone calls, text messages, video calls, and more. Really, the only limit becomes your developers' imaginations. It's time to build. Visit Twilio.com to learn more. Welcome to episode 213 of Greater Than Code. I'm your co-host, Rain Hendricks, and I'm here with my co-host, John Sowers. And I'm here with co-host Jerome Hardaway and with our guest, Cher. Cher is a self-taught software engineer currently at Apple. With 20 years of experience and a difficult, atypical background, Cher attributes her skills and success to compassionate curiosity. Cher's favorite things include being a mom, photography, stargazing, and making hot sauce. Welcome to the show, Cher. So, Cher... This is usually the point where we ask you what your superpower is, but I've already figured it out, and it's making and collecting hot sauce, which is extremely cool, and I was hoping you could talk to us about how you got into that. Uh, So I am a recovering bulimic. Um, That's an eating disorder, and unfortunately, I relapsed this past spring. Um, I went through a really stressful time, and thankfully, I didn't turn back to drugs. But unfortunately, I did turn to that horrible, uh, you know, habit, and I got really sick because of the most recent time. So I ended up having um, surgery, and I was recently diagnosed with a chronic um, issue called gastroparesis, which means a part of my stomach is paralyzed, and It means that 90% of the time I eat, I either end up not being able to eat very much at a time or I end up getting sick afterwards. So eating these small amounts frequently, they need to be more exciting because ordinarily, you know, you get like, like, let's say I have a, a big salad and the lettuce really adds a texture to the food that is like crunch and chill. And it's all this like interesting stuff that goes into eating. And I can't have lettuce anymore. It is like one of the things I don't know why that like really triggers my condition. So I can't have lettuce anymore. And there's a lot of foods like if I start listing them out that I literally just like can't eat right now because it I I just can't do it like it triggers the condition. And so hot sauce is something that is so like hot peppers in general are so dynamic because of the way that they interact with your taste buds and the receptors in your mouth and sugar together can like bring out all of these different flavors. And it really makes food exciting for me to eat still in such very small portions. And making hot sauce has been like such an exploration in that because I can reach for like, let's say there's like a salad that I really liked eating. What were the flavors in that salad? And how can I still capture that same feeling that I got from that particular salad without being able to actually make that salad because I can't have lettuce? So would you describe this as a coping mechanism now? Yes. (laughs) I don't mean that in a pejorative way at all. I think coping is great. Was it a hobby before it became a coping mechanism or was it a coping mechanism before it became a hobby? It was definitely a hobby before, because like I said, I was already collecting. Like, I think I had probably like 
90 to 100 different hot sauces as of four years ago, I think was the last time I had posted something about it because somebody was like, you don't even like hot sauce. And I was like, um, (laughs) I definitely do. But it wasn't to what it is now where I'm like talking about it. And of course, you know, actually like making it. And one of the things I started doing before I started making it was I was mixing different hot sauces together to try to recreate these different flavor profiles that I literally felt like I couldn't enjoy because of this condition that I have now. It strikes me that you took something that was sort of a fun thing you did on the side and it became something that that really improves your quality of life. Yes, exactly. I think that's really cool. Going from hot sauce, uh, let's try to take it to programming, you know, like in that aspect, right? You said about mixing these recipes up in your head or these type of hot sauces in your head to try to like get a different pl- uh, flavor profile that you missed or, you know, the idea of building projects from um, beginning to end and while you're making like your own hot sauce as well. And I really see that there's a, there's a knowledge transfer there, right? I'm picking up that that passion of building, you know, the process of hot sauce and, you know, getting into where you wanted to be as well as taking a product from one endpoint to the next and getting that to where you wanted to be. They both flow together well. And I wanted to know, like, is that, have you ever always noticed that you had like this kind of knowledge transfer of like ownership from end to end of the things that you like to um, love to do? Yeah. And I definitely think it's like a combination of that innate curiosity that I kind of always attribute everything that I do in my life to. And then also like, you know, that I have this innate drive to execute on the things that I kind of think about, I guess, that I'm curious about. And I think that part of that isn't always a good thing. Um, I've had to learn over the course of my career when to one, let other people do the executing and two, like that sometimes I can feel like I have too much ownership over something because I have an idea in my head of how I think that it should be. And there's a lot of sort of like rigid inflexibility in that. And so having to say like, okay, it's great that you have all of these ideas. And yes, they're all really good. But maybe there's other information out there that can help shape something better. And that comes from other people. And that's sort of like where I and while I was working at Blizzard Entertainment, I really like learned that like I could hear, you know, every voice can matter. And that good ideas can kind of come from anywhere. And that if you bring all of those ideas together, generally, you always end up with something that is is way better. And that's really informed, I think, my understanding of how things like why like things like diversity are like so important, you know, because you're actually having those voices in at the beginning. And so like the past like six six or seven years of my career, I would say like that's graduating into like more senior mentoring kind of things. You know, you start to learn that um, you can't always execute on everything yourself. And it's actually better if you don't. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear more about the process of, of learning that like over, over time. Uh, like, was it something that you noticed and then explicitly changed or was it sort of a gradual thing that evolved over time or some combination of the two? I would say it was definitely gradual because the way that it was expressed to me and feedback from my managers wasn't that it didn't have that level of clarity. 
it was more like you talk a lot in meetings and you have a lot of really great ideas. And some people feel like, you know, that you maybe think that you have the only good ideas, which of course was not ever the case, right? It's just was more of the drive to execute. And the other piece of feedback that I um, had gotten a lot in my earlier career was that I never said no, and I wasn't willing to give up on things. So when you're building software, like you have to be able to give up on some things sometimes. And it's not always because you can't make that thing work, but sometimes it's because you can't make that thing work that way under these particular conditions, like whether that's a time constraint or a financial constraint, like whatever the case may be. And so I think that those two facets of feedback that I was getting once I was sort of surpassing like being a mid-level engineer and like I could see that like, you know, that they were wanting to promote me to senior, you know, into senior and into different types of leadership. But I was kind of missing these two key pieces um, of being able to be that kind of mentor or leader. And I think just reflecting on those pieces of feedback and applying them to like, like what that means for me. And then what, what that also means for my teammates and why it's for kind of the overall greater good. It kind of evolved for me into this sort of understanding that I, that I'm at now, which I think that everything in my head, like I have to have like a big picture understanding of, and I'm the kind of person that like, and I know that like people see this about me. It's like, it seems like I have to know everything, which I think is that curiosity. And I remember when I was in school, there were a lot of kids that didn't like me growing up. And it's, I was always like referred to like as a know-it-all, but then they would always say stuff like, oh, you know, somebody would ask a question about something. They'd be like, oh, ask Cher. She seems to know everything. And it's not that I knew everything. It's just that I had to know, I had to know as much as possible in order to feel like I understood you know, the best possible outcome of something or how to move forward or something. I just like, I have that need to like understand how things work together. And I think that that was, it ended up being a positive thing, even though I know that it can come across to people as like, how do you fit all of this information in your head? And why do you, you know, so much useless things. And I think it's just because like, I've always just needed to understand the big picture. And so growing over you know, these past several years after getting this feedback into how do I make myself a better person? And how do I apply this feedback in a more broad way that makes me better for myself and also me better for other people, whether that be clients or mentees or teammates or my boss or the company, like whatever that is, how do I apply that feedback? And I think that's how I landed where I am at today in terms of dialing it back a little and letting other people get involved or do the execution, delegating. <laughs> Sounds like what you've done there is, is is an important task of like taking the the strengths that you're aware of within yourself and and not diminishing those, but figuring out how those are impacting the people around you and then executing them differently or, or presenting them differently so that you're still doing those things that you're good at, but you're aware of that impact and you can make sure that it's a positive impact rather than a, oh, I didn't realize this was completely horrible for you kind of impact. Yeah, I totally think that the combination of seeking feedback from the people around you and then introspecting like feedback from yourself, I think that that is a core skill that everybody needs to 
there's a lot of people, and I'm sure that I did this when I was younger, where when you hear feedback, you automatically can either like apply it all and then think that like, oh, wow, I'm this horrible person. I need to change all of these things about myself. All of these things about myself are horrible or the opposite, like shut down and think that, you know, that person is a complete jerk and not do anything to change at all. Like, you know, these two very binary options. It's really about like, how do I treat myself as I want to be treated and make sure that others are treating me that way as well. But then also make sure that what I'm communicating, what I'm putting out there is what I actually intend because everybody else is not the same as me. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the the empathy you were talking about earlier. Um, and again, that's also kind of like a, and yet another one of those superpowers that's sort of compensating for you know, something that maybe isn't as strong as you were saying earlier about like being able to read faces and emotions versus just feeling them directly out of, a, of another person. Yeah. One thing I really want to get into is the aspect of bravery, especially when it comes to me. Like, right, people kind of see me when they talk about bravery, talk about veterans, things like that. But you're very open with your story and like you know, the things you've had to endure and overcome to get to where you are. And for to me, that's the ultimate type of bravery to be able to see and talk about the uh, ups and downs and tribulations of life and be absolutely raw about it in a place, especially a world like Twitter, where things get discombobulated and people can be jackasses and, you know, being this uniquely raw individual where, you know, you're telling people, Take me as I am. This is the type of things I've endured. If I've done it, you can do it too. I'm here to share my story to help people avoid the type of pitfalls that I have. Like, how, what was the, I call it the FIM moment in VWC? Uh, it's, I don't know if I could say it on here, but it's like Foxtrot, Unicorn, Charlie Kilo, it moment, right? I use phonetic alphabet so I don't get in trouble. Uh, it's like, you know, just say, like, screw it, right? You know, I'm going to be me, and I'm going to be open and honest and raw and, you know, essentially brave. So, like, when did that happen? Like, when did, you know, the sh- you know when did that moment just, you know, that epiphany just start? I can't tell you exactly the single moment, but I, like, in, in terms of, like, the time or what exactly occurred, but I can tell you the mind thing that I went through. I mean, I know that all people, especially that are underrepresented in tech pretty much have imposter syndrome. Um, but people it's like the more of those things you have stacked against you, the more imposter syndrome you feel. So I think that part of the reason that I hit all of those things for so long is because I felt like, okay, yeah, everybody thinks they're an imposter, but I actually am an imposter. And here's my list of reasons why. And it was like all of those things, you know? And what started to happen is that like, I started to have this following on Twitter and people thought of me, not just from Twitter, but from the text space in web and front end web, especially like in the places where I'd worked, like in DC and in Seattle, it's like people knew who I was and they respected me as an engineer. But the way that people talked about me was like, I didn't have all of these things like that. I, you know, people thought that I had graduated from college because of the way that I present myself, the way that I speak, all of the things that I know about. So people just automatically assume like, oh, she has like a master's or a PhD or some, in some sort of science. And 
I saw that and I accepted that I was fine with that because like, why would I want to argue that? Right. Until I started noticing the gatekeeping that was happening with things that were true about me. And in the moment in particular was something about being educated. And it was just that moment. It just was like, I tore the lid off. I was like, you know what? Like I am tired of people saying that you have to meet these certain stringent requirements and you can't have come from A, B or C place and not get to where we are. Because you know what? I did that. Here are all of the reasons that you would say that I can't do this job today that I am doing now. If I had, you know, came out with all of this stuff 10, 15 years ago, people would be like, oh, no, 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 no. You can't, you can't be a software engineer. You will never work at Apple as a software engineer. You will never be a principal engineer. That will never happen for you. And, you know, I've had the privilege of being able to hide all of those things. I already accomplished those things. So now I can come out and say, yes, you can have been a sex worker and become a software engineer. You can have dropped out of high school and become an engineer at a FANG company. You can have dropped out of college and never finished. You can have grown up extremely poor and become a principal engineer. You don't need all of these things that people are claiming that you need to be at that level. And I can tell you that because those people already see me at that level and they didn't know all of this stuff about me. So obviously none of those things have a real impact on your ability to overcome those things. Now, of course, you know, we all have our different opportunities and, you know, ways that we have to overcome obstacles. So there are reasons I was able to go past those things that were a struggle and will be a different kind of struggle for other people, but those are not my defining features at all. And they're not anybody else's defining features either. Isn't it weird sometimes being in a room and you hear those gatekeeping things or the things that people assume about you and you're like, no, none of that's true. I've, I've, in my tenure of being in programming, like people have said things like, oh, he's Air Force. He was in intelligence. Uh, he must have worked in Intel or something like that. I'm like, no, that is not what happened at all. I was uh, security forces and stuff like that. And you're like, and people's eyes just open because they decided that because you're in the room with them, you can't come from humble beginnings or you can't, you couldn't have willed your way and pushed your way into these environments. And I'm hearing a lot of that coming from your story in which like, you know, you decided you opened up because you're running around and just because you're in the room with these people already, they're assuming and making these assumptions that not only that you didn't come from these places, but people that are like you can't do the work that you're doing today. And you're like, you know, that's not right. You do the craziest thing possible. You put yourself out there on a limb and let people, you know, the internet judge you uh, to showcase that, hey, this is 100% possible and you too can be where I'm at. Which, like like I said, that's super brave because, like, people in general are, like, when they, you know, they're jackasses. So I, whenever, when I first heard about you, I was like, yo, that's, like, the wildest thing I've seen in 2020. And like I said, I've seen a lot. So, <laughs> so I was like, I wanted to make sure that, you know, we got that. And like, you know, this, like, insane level of, like, rawness and integrity about who you are to ensure that people know that, guess what, you know, you too can be where I'm at. And I think that one of the greatest things and 
you know, maybe you've experienced this with some of the things like you've shared, you know, out there in terms of like what you actually did, you know, in the military or, you know, whatever before that is that a lot of people who are also have that same level of notoriety that you do, or even more, start coming out and saying like, yeah, actually, same, or here's the things that you assumed about me that aren't true. And here's actually the things that I've had to overcome that you assumed, you know, somebody like that couldn't possibly be here. I think that the when we did that authentic sort of little mini thing, um, with all of these folks who had dropped out of high school, it was so eye opening for people to see, you know, somebody like me or somebody like, is his name Nader? 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 I, I know. I know who you're talking about. Uh, I think it's Nadir. I, yo, yo, fam, if you hear this, we apologize in advance for messing up your name. Uh, he's with the AWS Amplify team. He's DevRel on there. We are so uh, sorry. We love you. Don't add us on Twitter. <laughs> like, I know who you're talking about. But yeah, he's, he has a crazy uh, story. I want to say Nadir, but... I can't in great confidence say that I'm getting it right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but him, so uh, I'm going to say Nadir Dabit. <laughs> Last name, I'm probably pronouncing wrong too. Um, don't, and then don't be mad at us. Kurt, Kurt Kempel, you know, he also dropped out of high school. And then Kurt, like me, you know, talked about, you know, his history with addiction and he's somebody who you know he came out with that stuff after he was already respected by the community as well and so like all it takes is like for one person to say like you know what this is me and other people can get here too and suddenly you start to realize that you're not actually alone i think that's the biggest thing that kind of comes with sharing your story is you know, we're eradicating stigmas, right? Like, you know, uh, Kurt and I, we spoke about his work and dealing with regard and his journey with incarceration, addiction, things of that nature, and how he's overcome that and how he, you know, tries to give, you know, he, he works so hard to give back and want to create pathways for other people. And it's a very inspiring story, uh, just because of the fact, like, you know, it's all about, you know, showcasing that, Hey, if I did this, I'm no one special, which is, I think as a group, we always would try to let people know, like, I'm no one special. So if I did this, you can do it too. And, you know, that's your thing. Like, you know, I'm far from special. Like, if you're saying special, then like, I'm going from the wrong special that you're probably thinking for. But if I have uh, encountered and endured all this and I'm here, then you too can get here as well. So you don't have it excuse um, or so beyond the fact that this is what I want and companies don't have an excuse because you've already showcased that people like you can do the work right so like you know it's a duality of breaking multiple stereotypes um, on both sides of the coin right like and, you know like I said it's just utterly inspiring yeah it's interesting you talked about that like I'm not special but I mean I am special but like I think everybody is special and has their own special gifts or talents to bring, you know, to an organization or a team or, you know, a thing you're building, whatever the case may be, project. But the thing that we have to remember is that, like, I think what a lot of the time, especially in my early career, like 
the way that it has changed for women since I became a software engineer, it's like night and day difference from when I first started. But the way that I was always thought of, even before people knew about all this stuff about me, was as an exception, you know? So the men that I, you know, didn't necessarily work directly with, but worked with or were I knew in the communities where I was in in tech, they would say things about women engineers. And then I would be like, um, and they're like, oh, well, not you. You're different. You're basically like a male engineer, but you just have like a, you know, a woman's body. And I'm like, no, I am not. I am just an engineer that happens to be a woman. Like I'm not an exception to some sort of rule that says, you know, that women don't make good engineers or women aren't good at math or which is, I mean, that's just a whole other thing, you know, like I'm not an exception. And I think that, I think it's really hard for people to both like feel like, okay, I'm unique and special in certain ways, but I'm not an exception to some rule. I may be exceptional, but I am not an exception. That sounds like a, (laughs) that sounds like a wheezy, a clean wheezy uh, lyric right there. (laughs) Yeah, remember we had that conversation. We were talking about how, like, we're both big hip hop heads, and like how back in the day, Lil Wayne just he would murder everybody on their own music, and I was like, I would never let that guy uh, ever be on our um, on my uh, record ever. Like, that's kind of like you know how you kind of do that type little Wayne slash like fat rabbit like or is it white rabbit i don't know what is the group um what's the character that uh, that Eminem played in on uh, 8 mile it was it's like rabbit huh it's yeah. A rabbit yeah rabbit okay so he basically was you know he used everything that people use against him to show how you know he, uh, you know how great he was or like showcase his skill. Uh, it's like, you know, I'm great in spite of these things. And like same way with Lil Wayne, how he creates the, you know, he uses the hardships of his life to create, you know, this crazy flow that, you know, at least back in the day before he became old and wild, uh, and started like supporting like uh, fat fascists, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's really mem- memorable. Right. So it just, it just reminds me like of how crazy, you've used your journey to empower so many people. Yeah. And it's funny you bring that up because I was trying to find the the tweet, but when I first started kind of revealing more stuff about like, because the mental health came first and I started talking about, I came from like, you know, like a, I didn't come from a money or anything that I came from, you know, poor background. And um, people were starting to try to use a lot of things against me that you could find by Googling me, you know? And so I just, that's one of the times I just started listing everything off. And I remember I put a GIF of Rabbit dropping the mic and it's like, tell them something they don't know about me, (laughs) you know? Because I felt like I had to do that. I'm like, you know what? Like you think that all of these things about me that I've been hiding I've been hiding because I view them as insulting, but I actually don't view them that way. I just don't want to be ostracized. And since, (laughs) I mean, I'm out here saying these things, I'm going to go ahead and say them. And I'm the only one who can use those things against me. It's like if you have a sibling and, you know, you call them, you know, like a moron or something or, you know, some other word. It's But if somebody else calls them that, it's not okay. 
like only you can make fun of your sibling. You know, it's kind of like the same thing with yourself. Like I can be like, Oh, all of, I'm ashamed of all of these things. But the second somebody else starts doing it, like I have way too much like personal, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what the word pride in myself. I don't know. Too gangster. That's what it is. You gangster. <laughs> like, yo, yeah. What I say about me and what you can say about me are two very different two, things. Two very different uh, things. Gonna be on, you know, you know what we say, Faithful, you know, F around and find out. Like, that's what we, you know, it's, it's okay. That's, you know, we just sometimes just gotta let them know, right? I'm right there with you. Like, you know, even veterans, like, we have our inter, um, our inter service arguments and stuff. Like, when we we're talking about, they call Air Force chair for us, and then we call Marines crayon eaters. Like, we can say that. A civilian rolls up and says that the whole party's gonna stop, and we're gonna, like, okay, like, you know, you made several mistakes and we're going to give you a chance to, you know, you know, fix them um, right now. So like, I definitely I'm right there with you. Absolutely love it. So there was a thing I wanted to bring up, but I thought there would be no possible way to make it relevant. But Jerome, you just made it possible. So now I'm going to bring it up. Jerome, do you know who Marlon Kraft is? Can't say I do. So Marlon Kraft is uh, a white kid from the Bronx who just did a freestyle on Funk Flex a few weeks ago. So he is a poor white kid from the Bronx who suffered from anxiety, who was bullied, and he is now completely killing it. And he did a freestyle on Funk Flex, which is a big deal. And it was really good. And the reason I wanted to mention this is because of two things he said. One was, I'm making a living now off of what ate me up privately. So he turned what he went through into that's now like part of his voice, what he talks about. And then the other thing was, I was thinking about how we were talking about, you know, what it's like to grow up with these challenges and and whether that has an impact on what you can achieve. Some people, when, when they have these challenges, there seem to be two really interesting things that happen. One is that they become really selfish. So like you've seen white dudes that are like, they grew up poor and are like racism doesn't exist because of what, what I went through. Right. And then you have this guy who was a a white guy growing up in hell's kitchen, getting bullied all the time. And he says, it ain't really about your aptitude. It's more geographical rules, more unilateral than practical. It's more based on the tone of your skin than anything factual. A lot of folks entitled to what they ain't given no action to. Yeah. I, I bars, bars, I feel that. You know, what's um, interesting is that, so my husband, he was in prison, he's a felon. And he grew up even more poor than I did went through harder stuff. My, our moms were best friends growing up and our stepdads worked together, which is how we knew each other. And um, having to help him through the same kind of conversations, like cause when you when you grow up really poor and you're white, you don't see things that you might see outside of that space. So, like you said, like a lot of you know these white people who grow grew up poor, they grow up thinking racism doesn't exist because we all have the same quote unquote. I'm air quoting right here the same struggle. And I had to help him through understanding that even though he was seeing the same struggle because of where he lived, that these others were like, I wasn't, I saw a different struggle because of where I lived was a more, you know, 
upper class and it's more that we couldn't really afford to live there, but my mom did anyway, um, kind of thing. But, you know, helping him get through understanding that he was given a lot more opportunities or not denied, I guess, as many opportunities because he's white. And that's been a, a really big struggle. And it's like, I, it also gave me a lot of perspective on how people like I grew up with, how they end up on the other side of this sort of mental battle about these sort of topics and not understanding that they're not like that. It's so hard to word this stuff, but it's like, it's not that they have all of this privilege. He doesn't have financial privilege. He doesn't have a lot of privileges, but he does have the privilege of being white and it doesn't negate the fact that he has struggled in other ways. It's just that it's different. And in helping him understand that he now understands why things like classism and racism are so closely intertwined. We, uh, the way we say it is that, um, with white privilege, it's not saying that your life is more difficult. You don't have trials and tribulations. What it is stating is that you will not ever have to have race be a component of those trials and tribulations. Right. For instance, I live in Nashville, right. And being a minority, you have a, as a black man, you have a 27% chance higher of getting um, harsher, you're 24% chance higher getting harsher treatment from the police here in Nashville. And, you know, Nashville on the, you know, metro side is super blue. But then as you get further and further out, you know, like most um, southern places, cities are blue, um, suburbs get redder and redder the further. You get like pretty much every like 10 miles, it gets redder. So, like, that's like how we, you know, how we try to explain it. It's not about, when we say white privilege, it's not about, oh, you know, your life can't be hard because you're privileged. No, what we're saying is that, hey, you have the privilege that no one's going to assume that by the color, the color of your skin, how your hair looks or how uh, your name appears that, you know, you are a horrible person or they're not going to mistreat you by that. Right. Yeah. So like, you know, and, and I understand because I, I come from, uh, you know, a poor background as well and so when you try to try and you know i'm in the south so like you know i'm so i'm surrounded by republicans left and right i might as like i'm like the lone biden like person on my like street this is horrifying like it was biden one is a nightmare like they were so sad it's like ghost town here uh, <laughs> so I, I i enjoyed the tears i'm not gonna lie but uh, <laughs> i'm sorry i'm being mean i lie um but I try to, you know, we try to do the explanations to like my southern peers. It's always about, hey, yes, we absolutely did grow up in the same schools and stuff. But then guess what happened when we started applying for the same jobs? You know how, you know, your dad was able to, you know, put a word in for you or you didn't even have to get a word in for you. You didn't have to. Once you graduated high school, you was able to get a job at FedEx and then FedEx, you know, they, without your degree, they quickly ramped you up to get into corporate. They paid, you know, they did all these programs. You quickly got a mentor, things of that nature. Well, guess what? I have people who, there are people who look just like you who they've been in FedEx 10, 15 years and they've never had any of those opportunities and they're still working in the warehouse. And, you know, these are the problems or those things that are problematic within our culture or how I like to, you know, I tell people like, well, my first experience while being in, 
in tech when it came to racism and things of that nature, where there was just a person who, regardless of what he did wrong, you could not speak truth to power. And I spoke truth to power and I ended up like having situations like, you know, we've talked about about it share where, hey, you know, I'm in there meeting the you know, president of the United States and they give me a paragraph. I mean not a paragraph, but a sentence in the news a story about White House demo day because this guy was mad at me, so and no one else wanted to piss him off. And like this dude was not the mayor or something, just guy at a startup incubator. Like, you know, this is a huge deal. But you know, that's where, you know, racism and white privilege comes into play. Like, if I was a white guy getting invited to be the president of the United States, would you really take this person's feelings into account the same way uh, if, you know, versus it being me, right? So I definitely understand the hardship of trying to explain it when, you know, it's an emotional thing, right? Because deep down, you know, you know that this person is good, they just don't understand, and they're feeling attack or accosted as if they did something wrong and we're trying to say you're not saying that you uh are a perpetuator of the system we are saying that you benefit from the system and for you to be conscious of it so that way you can see these things and be able to call them out or stop them when you see them right not saying that you know oh you're a white person you're a you know default default horrible like no it's just saying that hey there's a privilege there you, when you see it, you, we're going to show you the uh, dog whistles of that privilege. So when you see it at play, you can do something about it, right? See something, um, see something, say something, right? That's how I've explained it to people. I just want to throw that out there. Like that's, the, I feel like that's an easier way to do it in a manner that like where people don't get offended as such because, like I said, it's a especially when it's the loved ones. Like I like girl, I can't like. Your conversation had to be tough because this is a person you're, you know, you're, you're going to be raising kids with and stuff. So like that had to be a tough conversation. It really was, and it wasn't just one conversation, right? It's been so many. But I, I do want to touch really fast on. I think it's important that when you're having these conversations, especially with your family or close friends, that people that you aren't willing to just like, you know, wash your hands of and be like, I can't with this, you know. I think you have to know that person and you have to use what you know about them to try to help them understand what you're trying to say in a way that, you know, like you said, like you have to, you don't want to offend them. You don't want it to turn into a fight because you care about this person, but you also like, you need them to understand like what it is that they're not seeing. And so the thing with him that I, this exercise I kind of went through is we talked about like how growing up, like, okay, like living in, you know, the suburbs, um, even the, you know, the really, really poor suburbs of Seattle, you're still dealing with mostly white people, you know, because that's, it's a, you know, you are in the vast majority there. And especially in the nineties, did we know some black people? Yes. But was that the majority? No. Okay. So now the lifestyle that we grew up with, like, who are we mostly around white people? Okay, who are we getting in trouble with the law with? White people. But when you went to prison in the state of Washington, what did you see? Not the majority black people, no, but a lot more black people. And I didn't have to tell him that. He said it. And I was like, so if you if you and uh, one of your you know black friends or partners got caught doing something, committing some crime, I was like, if I just ask you honestly right now, I was like, who do you think is going to get a harsher sentence, even if you both said you did the same thing? And he's like, well, he would. And I'm like, and why do you think that? He's like, because I've seen it. 
And I was like, so I was like, is that because of the color of his skin? And he's like, well, yeah, I guess. And that was the thing that completely shifted our conversation because I used an experience that he was able to ascertain like, yes, I've, I've witnessed this. I just never thought about it in the way that you are framing it to make me see that like I'm getting more benefit of the doubt than this person, even when I feel like I'm getting no benefit of the doubt. Yeah, this is really important to me. This is sort of what I was trying to get at a little bit before, which is some people go through these experiences and they discover empathy, like share, like you did. And then some people don't. And so the question for me is how can we get more of the former? And I think that what you're doing is you're giving us an example of how that can work. And that's really important. Yeah, I totally agree. Also, it, it seems like to me as well that once that happens, it's like, like a light switch turns on and that empathy is sort of self-reinforcing. Once you start seeing the world in this way, you see more of it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's totally like self-reinforcing for sure. Yeah. And so for me, the question is really how what are the things that work to flip that switch on for people? And I think it's different for different people, but I think that there are things that you can learn that make it more likely. I think that as far as like the lessons that I've learned in terms of like as a mom, you know, like trying to teach my daughter empathy in this particular situation with my husband and then also with myself is finding the space where you can see yourself in that particular situation, even if you can't put yourself in that person's shoes, see yourself in that situation because of the way that your brain works, right? Like when you are visualizing things or imagining things, your brain can't necessarily differentiate between the real emotions you feel because of things that you're actually experiencing and the emotions you're feeling because of things that you're pretending to experience. Mm -hmm. You, you actually learn, um, you know, it's like Pavlovian, like you learn those emotional responses in those situations. And I think that that is the key is like finding those spaces where you yourself or your loved ones or friends or people you're mentoring can see themselves in those situations so that they actually are feeling those emotions. And I think you did a thing which is really important, which is that you didn't just make a general argument about how black people are treated worse. You, you told a specific story that that person could relate to and could, like you're saying, activated their mirror neurons, activated their empathy. Yeah. And that's why it's my superpower, right? (laughs) I would agree. Yeah. I learned something really interesting the other day, which is that I've been reading a lot about witchcraft, (laughs) which sounds really (laughs) out there. But, you know, anybody that has followed me for a long time or knows me knows that, like, I need everything to have a scientific explanation. Um, And so sometimes when I read about things that I don't necessarily believe in, sometimes it's just for historical understanding or curiosity or whatever. But in this case, I was really curious where this idea of a witch or witchcraft came from. And I came along that there was this word, so witch comes from Wicca, but uh, which is, you know, like related to like the pagan religion. Um, But also there was another Wicca, which only had one C in it, which may also be uh, from where witch comes from. And if you look at a lot of other uh, translations of witch in other countries um, or older countries, I should say, they all sort of stem from. Uh, this original word Wicca, W-I-C-A, which is supposedly from like old Irish, uh, very old Irish language that meant wise. 
And so witchcraft was wisdom craft in which if you think about it with all of these other sort of, uh, uh, you know, translations of the word witch that literally translates to quote unquote, knowing more. And the fact that, you know, it used to be more about like herbalism and, and medicine and, and really therapy, <laughs> right? Like counseling services, you know, from, and, and I just think that it's like this innate wisdom and really what it comes down to from everything that I have learned reading about all of this is that it had to do with uh, like a combination of humility and curiosity and empathy. And I think that that is like the key to finding peace and, and health within yourself and then also harmoniously existing with other people while still standing up for the things that you think are uh, just and and morally right. Yeah, it's also like it's easy in hindsight to look back in that and say, well, you know, look at all the stupid things that they were doing. But if you think about the people who persecuted the witches, they were people who literally believed that prayer worked. Exactly. So like, <laughs> well, I won't even get into all of that, you know, but the the whole idea is like, okay, well, if like I look at my family and a lot of them are very religious and they definitely believe that prayer works. But when I talk about you know, because that's just not something I necessarily believe in the terms that they believe it. But I do believe that the kind of energy, and I don't mean like a, a pseudo energy, I mean, like, really, like, you know, the things you do in the world, the way you treat people, the way you talk to people, and, and even just the thoughts you have, you know, those things, they matter, because they change people's behavior around you, they change animals behavior, you know, around you, depending on, you know, what kind of energy you're putting out into the world. And I think that any other form of trying to manifest goodness by literally just trying to do good things and think good things and be good to people, I think it's all the same. And so it is frustrating to look back at the persecution of, of witches, you know, and just see that they were all really doing the same thing. But they, one side, maybe even sometimes both sides, couldn't accept that the other person was doing it in a way that was different than them, even though ultimately they had the same intentions. I also love the um, the little detail that the Icelandic word for uh, computer is translated literally as number witch. I did not know that, and I love it. It's like we're getting close to reflection time. So my reflection for today is is one that it definitely has cropped up a number of times on the show over the last while now, which is the incredible power that we can have as people when we claim our story rather than denying it, rather than pretending we're just like everybody else. Like even when those stories are horrible and traumatic and unimaginable for some people, that being able to be honest about that in a public way like is incredibly empowering for oneself as well as for all the other people that can see you do that. Uh, and, and I think your story is, you know, another example of the kind of power that you can get from that, which isn't to say that, you know, people should have these experiences just because it makes them better for, <laughs> or anything like that. But just like when you come from that kind of adversity and you've had enough, you know, support to get to where we are right now, you know, you can be, it can be very inspiring and it can be a great way to connect with other people. I think my reflection is that there is, I think, a huge potential for empathy here because these, these people have quite a bit in common. And it's really just about unlocking that potential that, that already exists. I think 
my reflection is along the same lines and just that empathy is pretty much the, I, I mean, I feel like it's the glue that holds everything together. And I think you just through this conversation, it kind of just like reinforced like how important it is and how interwoven it is to literally everything, whether you're trying to be successful um, in making some application for other people. If you start thinking about the fact that who you, you start thinking about who it's for instead of how do I make this thing successful? Like how do I make my, you know, target users experience successful, then it's likely that your application is going to be successful or that you are going to be successful. So reframing everything that you think about in terms of like what you can do for other people is the key to literally everything. All right. So I guess it's me. My reflection has really been on the skills transfer of experience in this talk, right? We've talked about how adversity um, helps you come through the problems. Uh, we've talked about hot sauce and building hot sauce from end to end or, you know, mixing your two favorite hot sauces to try to get a different flavor profile or a uh, flavor profile you miss. You know, we've talked about engineering. But the thing that I really loved about this conversation from hot sauce to rap to code is that there have been little nuggets that kind of like link each one to the other and show, no, we, it's more of a interwoven story where we're able to share that even though it looks chaotic and it looks different, these things are all like, you know, connected in some level. And that's a lesson I think as engineers and people, uh, we can bring into our, you know, daily lives. That instead of looking at what what um, makes these things different, let's look at the thing that, you know, connects these two things. Let's look at the, you know, the thread that, you know, connects this to that. Even when we're trying to share stories to, you know, educate our family members on things that they might not agree with. Let's, you know, let's look at the thread that connects it and, you know, pull it to, you know, un you know reveal uh, unravel things we don't think and reveal, you know, totally new truths. So that's something that I really enjoyed with this talk. All right. Wonderful conversation, everybody. Yeah, you too. It was nice talking to all three of you. 